Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Your friends in Christ. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor in Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas. Luke goes to great lengths to place our story, the story of John the Baptist, at the intersection of the secular and the religious. Notice the five civil rulers, Caesar and Pilate, Herod and his brother, and then Licinius. The last one is the most difficult to place, both historically and theologically. Maybe Luke included it because Licinius was the governor of where the place where Luke came from. Or perhaps for literary reasons. Maybe he needed five so that Herod could be the one in the center, make him the focus. And if that's the case, then Herod becomes the bookends for the ministry of John the Baptist as Luke records it. Because chapter 3 ends, which is the entire mission of John, with these words. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, And for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. And he locked up John in prison. And all of this during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. At that intersection, the intersection of the secular and the religious, John came and John thundered. You brood of vipers! Matthew records that then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. John proclaimed the law, God's law, cold and clear. There was no mistaking it. And the crowd responded, what then shall we do? And the tax collector said, well, teacher, what shall we do? Even the soldiers came out and said, and we, what shall we do? Well, the intersection of the secular and the religious today is a very different corner. Crowds are not flocking to our churches to hear God's law thundered from the pulpit. They're not interested in curiously clad prophets or the inconvenience of desert plate regions. Sin? Well, you have your opinion. I have mine. Confess? Who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Dr. Linda Gottlieb offers some insights into this situation. She notes that the the practice of psychotherapy in the United States is losing its client base. In 11 years, the number of patients receiving psychological interventions plummeted 30%. That's 97 to 08. Reasons for the decline are complex, but Dr. Gottlieb focuses on at least one trend. Psychotherapy involves the long, hard work of facing our own issues, but many people today would rather blame others for their problems. In other words, therapists used to see patients who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves. Now there are more patients who come in, quote, because they want someone else or something else to change, close quote. Dr. Gottlieb follows with some tongue-in-cheek suggestions for rebranding the field. Instead of saying, I treat people with depression and anxiety, advertise your services by asking, are you, are you having trouble with the difficult people in your life? 
become happiness locators, not therapists. All that she admits is rather unprofessional, but it may get clients in the door. Recognizing this shift of perspective in our day, the shift from my problem to you are the problem, we return to the wilderness near the Jordan and ask, how do we speak the changeless message of John? Thus says the Lord, into the intersection of the secular and the religious on the corner of Third and Grove today. Well, first, we must recognize the unrest, the dissatisfaction that underlies our lives and those around us. I mean, it's still there, right? Nothing's changed. We're just pointing our fingers in the other direction. Recognize it and then own it. First of all, I recognize that I'm the one who's ill at ease. And second, you, I, don't live in a vacuum. We had a hand in it. Luther, in his small catechism, has something very interesting to say about this. This is from the the short form of confession. And the confessor is to say these words. I, sad to say, serve my master unfaithfully. For in this and that, I have not done what I was told to do. I made him angry and caused him to curse. The sin against the second commandment was my master's. But I brought him to it. I had a part in it. I'm a piece of that unrest. There's an old Chinese proverb that goes something like this. To forgive the unrepentant is like drawing on water. Now now we're starting to hear John. Repent. Own it. However small your part, admit that you have a piece of this. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, or Paul, or Luther. Instead, listen to Luther. Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, etc., etc.? The list goes on quite a ways. Which is precisely what John does at the end of our reading today. He addresses the crowd, tells them, be generous to the tax collectors. Collect only what you're commanded to do. And the soldiers, don't extort. Be content with your wages. Well, let's translate some of that New Testament and small catechism language into today. Have you honored your father and your mother? Well, kids... It's not likely staring at a screen. And remember, your father and your mother includes us adults. Have you seen to it that your parents are being cared for to the best of your ability? Have I stolen anything? Well, theft in the workplace is colorblind. It doesn't matter. White or blue collar, take your choice. The time is currency. Have you given full value of your time? Have I cherished my spouse as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh? Instead of covering their shortcomings and sins, have we been only too happy to tell tales? St. Peter writes, love covers a multitude of sins. And Melanchthon, reflecting on that verse in the Apology, writes, even though these offenses flare up, love conceals them, forgives them, and yields. 
We learn in our catechism that confession has two parts. Once we've recognized our part in the dissatisfaction, once we've owned our sin, now comes the second part, absolution. John came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then immediately, Luke draws our attention to Isaiah chapter 40. John is the fulfillment. He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Matthew and John both give us snippets from Isaiah, but Luke, Luke gives us the grand context. There's valleys and mountains and hills and crooked and rough. And then the climax of it all. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. We should note that Luke is reading with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Masoretic text. The original Hebrew reads a little differently. It reads, and all flesh shall see it together. Well, it is the glory of God that will be revealed. And Advent season is preparation for that coming glory. It's all over Jesus' first coming, as Luke records it in chapter 2. Verse 9, the glory of the Lord shone around them. That's the shepherds out in the field. Verse 14, the glory of God in the highest. That's the message of the angels. In verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. It's wonderful that the Greek translators in Alexandria, two centuries earlier, connected glory and salvation. God's glory and the salvation that he would bring in his son. To see the salvation of God is to receive a savior. A savior from our sin of dishonoring our parents or sin of cheating our employer, or the sin of not cherishing our spouse, a savior from the terminal cost of sin, which is death. Now, savior is a fairly common term in the Bible, I should say in the New Testament. New Testament shows up 53 times, but in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it only shows up in Luke. It's on Mary's lips in the Magnificat, our focus this coming Wednesday evening. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's part of the angelic announcement to the shepherds. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. In John's Gospel, it only shows up once. And this time it's on the lips of the Samaritans. They said to the woman, this is the woman by the well, it's Sychar, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that it is indeed he is indeed the Savior of the world. And finally, it's on Peter's lips. Before the council in Acts chapter 5, God exalted him at the right hand as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Salvation is also a common New Testament term, but not the particular form that we have in our text. As a substantized adjective, it shows up only five times. It's on Simeon's lips in the Nunc Dimittis, our focus on the third Advent evening. My eyes have seen your salvation. It's Paul's final words in Acts chapter 28 and twice in his epistles. But here, Luke wants us to see God's salvation in the announcement of John the Baptist. Prepare the way of the Lord, that all may see the salvation of God. We look forward to the coming of the Savior in this Advent season, the Savior that comes to us here at the intersection of the secular and the religious. He comes to us from the outside. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote from a Nazi prison cell in 1943 a letter to his friend that included these words. A prison cell in which one waits, hopes, does various unessential things, and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of Advent. Close quote. I need a savior. You need a savior. We cannot save ourselves, but God must open the door from the other side. Timothy Keller writes, Christmas is about receiving presents, I guess at least in part. But consider how challenging certain presents are. Some gifts by their very nature make you swallow your pride. Imagine you open a Christmas present on Christmas morning, and it's a book from a friend. It's a book about dieting. You take off another ribbon and find another book from another friend entitled Overcoming Selfishness. Well, if you say to them, thank you very much for the gift, you are, in a sense, admitting that you're overweight and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because in order to do so, you have to admit that you're flawed and weak and in need of help. Suppose you are in financial trouble, and your friend figures this out, and he comes to you with a large sum of money to get you out of the predicament you're in. To receive the gift is to swallow your pride. There has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that you are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. That means you are not somebody who can pull yourselves together and live a moral and good life. I need a Savior. So do you. And Jesus, in Jesus, you have a Savior. You are rescued from sin, from Satan, from the eternal death that is the price of sin. You are saved. The door has been opened from the other side. And having a Savior, we ask with the crowds and the tax collectors and the soldiers, what shall we do? Well, quite simply, live as his redeemed children. Generous, not greedy, content with the gifts that God has given us. Evan is not so much about a Savior who comes as about the Savior who is coming. Coming today in his word and his sacraments. Coming at the end of the age in power and glory to take us to be with himself. In both cases, in all three cases, past, present, and future, the promise remains the same. Jesus saves us from sin and death and the power of the devil. Amen. Now may the peace which surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.